We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Returning guest Kathleen Norris is the award-winning poet, writer, and author of the New York Times bestsellers, The Cloister Walk, Acedia and Me, Dakota, Amazing Grace, and The Virgin of Bennington. She's also published seven books of poetry, her first being the 1971 Big Table Younger Poets Award-winning, Falling Off. Kathleen's work explores the spiritual life with an intimate and historical perspective. Her book, Acedia and Me, a Marriage, Monks, and a Writer's Life, accompanied me personally in one of the most beautiful ways a book has ever. It changed my life and remains one of the, my top three favorite books of all time. I wept through the entire book, feeling more understood and clear-headed about my own spiritual journey than ever before. More recently, amid the pandemic, Kathleen shared some wisdom with the National Catholic Reporter, offering tips for coping with acedia amid this time of slowing down and staying in. She shared, I recognize acedia when it does turn up. Being forced to stay still is a breeding ground. It's the feeling of being totally bored and totally restless. It's a horrible combination. It isn't just depression. It isn't just boredom. It's a lot of things. Widowed in 2003, Kathleen is no stranger to living alone. And she now divides her time between South Dakota and Honolulu, Hawaii. In our previous chat with Kathleen back in September of 2018, she shared, Silence sometimes shows you what you're really suffering from, just to sit there and let the silence sink in. And often that's when you discover what it is you're really worried about, what you're really suffering from, what your real concerns are. Because when you're busy in the world, either with activity or a lot of verbal stuff going on, you're ignoring some of those deeper things and sitting in silence for a while, it will start to surface. Kathleen, it is such a joy and honor to welcome you back to the podcast. Welcome back. Thank you. We love beginning with a memory of silence. And, and since you've been on before, you've, you've shared a memory with silence. And I wonder if you might have a recent memory of encountering silence. Um, I encounter it in a way every morning because I, I start my days now with a morning walk. That is one of the ways I'm staying sane. I walk a labyrinth, it's a church nearby that has a labyrinth in the parking lot. And about the only sound I hear, there's not much traffic anymore, but I hear birds. And just the bird song and the silence, trying to keep silence in my mind as I walk the walk, along with whatever prayers come to mind, has been really a powerful thing. And I've never really walked labyrinths before. I, it's never been a thing that I thought mattered much. But now every morning it's become, when I walked, when I did it the first time, I walked away with a feeling, a sense of peace that was kind of new. And, and I thought, okay, I'm going to come back. And I've been coming back every day. This morning in particular, I noticed some, some wonderful bird song. And I probably wouldn't have noticed if I hadn't quieted down and done this senseless, useless walking in circles. Um, and silence is useless too, to, to most people's minds. 
but when you enter it, like you enter a labyrinth, you find that there's something more there for you. Yeah, yeah. As mentioned, um, you you live alone, and um, I wonder just how are you doing during this time, during you this know, time of I, staying in? I almost feel guilty for saying this, but I'm really doing pretty well. And of course, I'm I'm speaking from a per, per, uh, uh, a position of privilege because I don't have a super amount of financial worries. There's so many people who've lost jobs, people who have mm -hmm. loved ones in the hospital they can't visit. There's so many tragic things going on. And, I, and I'm on the prayer chain at my church, so we're very aware of that. We're praying for people every day. But for myself, in a sense, my life hasn't changed that much. I'm no longer riding the city bus. My gym is closed that I used to go to three or four times a week. But I am used to living alone. And I've been a Benedictine Oblate now for over 30 years. So I understand the value of a structured uh, life of prayer. Um, it's always easy. I always found it easy to pray with monks and nuns when I was with, on a retreat there. But it's so much less easy when you go home to kind of maintain that steady pace of prayer for every day. I mean, I would usually be pretty bad at it. And this pandemic and the isolation has kind of forced me into saying, no, this is important. If I do this, things will go better. And they do. So those two things, having been a widow, living alone for a long time, and also understanding that Benedictine value of the value of, of a structure, of, of a structured prayer life has really been a, a great help. And the daily walks, I'm walking two to three miles a day. And that has just been wonderful. I know it's, it's helping both my body and my mind. The first week, I was kind of a slug. I sat around just, I, I wasn't eating popcorn and, and drinking booze or anything, but I was just a slug. And I thought, you know, I really can't do this. I know that any kind of exercise mm -hmm. is going to be good. So I went out briefly for 20 minutes. And now, now it's like an hour and a half where I'm walking. And I live in a hilly neighborhood, so I can get a pretty good workout if I want to. Has this time also been a time that's nurtured writing time and what, what does writing time look like? And can we be expecting any more from you coming I soon? I haven't been able to apply myself as much as I would like to. I think, Oh, I have all this time. I should really get creative. And people are sending all these jokes about Shakespeare wrote King Lear, Newton invented calculus. And then there's a little line that, you know, how bored you have to be to invent calculus was, was the joke, but you know, getting all these things about people, all these things people have done. So it hasn't been, a major thing, but I have been able to meet a couple of deadlines that I had, and I did start one new poem, which is a big deal for me. It's it's a it's mm. a total mess. I mean, it's it's nowhere near to being uh, completed. And I do have a project that I am determined this week I'm finally going to get. Now that I've cleared the deck with my deadlines, I really want to get to. I'm hoping that there's more. Uh, this has been a struggle over the last couple of years for me to really get back into the kind of writing I like to do. So I'm hoping that that um, in the next month uh, in Hawaii, we just had our lockdown or our, our shelter in place extended to the end of May. So now that's my deadline. I have till the end of May to write King Lear and invent calculus. And um, <laughs> we believe in you. Or whatever. I wouldn't invent calculus. I barely survived algebra in high school. So, you know, and I think that's one of the beauties of, of this time and your relationship with being a Benedictine oblate and everything is that we're remembering kind of our original rhythms and that need to be rather than that need to do. I don't know if you could speak a little bit to that. Yeah, I mean, I think that is, 
you know, the, the structured, life having a structure. And of course, as a freelancer, I, I've, I've been doing this for years and you know that you can either work all the time or you can work not at all. And you have to try to find a balance between that. And sometimes I've done pretty well at that. Sometimes I've really messed up with that. Uh, but this crisis and being uh, isolated and not being able to really go out and, and see people even in stores and stuff has been very strange, but it's convinced me that those daily rhythms are so important. And so I pretty much have a, a very early morning rising time. Uh, I, I pretty much don't stay up past a certain time at night that uh, it fluctuates a little, but starting the day in a certain way with prayer and walking and all those things have become probably more important. And the thing that, that kind of has surprised me is that I'm even sleeping well at night. And I told that to a monk friend of mine, and he said, it, it could be that you're just too dumb to notice what's really happening. Uh, you know, those monks have wonderful ways of keeping us humble. But I think there's something to that, that, you know, praying and, and think, why should, I mean, I'm praying for a lot of people who are in much worse situation than I am, but why should I fret over something I have no control over? like a pandemic, like a lot of things that are going on. And somehow I'm able to sleep well at night with, without any medication, anything like that. I'm just, I, I get tired enough during the day. And, I, and it's amazing to me how busy I am during the day, just doing things around the house. And the, one of the big things I think that's helped a lot is staying in touch with other people. I've probably sent more snail mail cards and letters to people in the last month than I have in a year. I'm doing a lot of emailing to friends, people from church, especially seniors who are in lockdown in their resident, you know, senior homes and stuff. So that kind of thing. And I'll make a list. Okay, these are the people I'd like to write to today and do that and do the laundry and 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 keep up with that stuff and making sure that I'm eating okay, that I'm, you know, the basics, you know, just self-care stuff. It's all helping a lot. And I can see, you know, uh it would be a real temptation to just slide into it, to stay in your pajamas all day and not ever take a shower and not wash your hair and just sink into that depression. But uh, I'm, I'm more likely to do that in normal circumstances than now, which is very kind of comical. But I think that's the way it is. Along those lines, you know, feeding into that, that, that natural desire to want to maybe just slink into not getting up, not having a rhythm not washing my hair, not getting dressed. I'm kind of curious if you could speak a little bit because not everyone knows. Um, maybe this is the first time they've ever heard your voice. I doubt it, uh, but you know, there are those. And I, I'm kind of curious if you could speak a little bit to this idea of acedia. Cassidy in the intro mentions that uh, and you've written about it and, and you spoke to NCR about it. So I'm kind of curious if you could just mention what acedia is and how that fits into the spiritual life. Yeah, and it's actually, the word has existed. It, it comes it comes to us from the fourth century, the Christian desert fathers and mothers who looked at what they called the eight bad thoughts. They talked about the virtues that help us combat the, the eight good thoughts, but the biggest, and, and we recognize them all. We, we suffer from all of them, anger, pride, greed, lust, um, uh, all of those things, but for the ancient monks and nuns, the worst of the passions, the ones that were most destructive were anger, pride, and acedia. 
and we all know about anger and pride. Most of us are not familiar with the word acedia, but basically it was a form of despair that encouraged you to think that, you know, why bother? Nothing's worth doing. And again, that, that state of being restless because you're, you're restless and bored and kind of angry about it. And it's closely related to anger, I think. But anyway, that's that's where I discovered the word in, in those ancient writings. And I did I did 20 years of research on it. Because unless you were kind of in into studying Dante and, and monastic studies, you probably wouldn't have ever encountered the word. And so I thought, no, this is a word we need in the, in the 20th and 21st century. We're suffering from it. It's that state of restless boredom. Workaholism is a symptom, can be a symptom of acedia, and also doing nothing can be a symptom of acedia. You know, if you think that nothing is worth doing, why bother? Why bother? Why bother? And it really is a terrible form of despair. And I think it's a shame that that word basically got lost to us because I think we, we can really use it now. And I do think thinking of it in terms of the virus, it it is an it's a it's a bad thought. It's a passion that is opportunistic, just like this virus. It will strike just when we're at a low point. Our immune system is down because we're we're feeling anxious and tired and restless and bored and sad about how things used to be. And all of those things are classic signs of, of acedia. Kathleen, how do we recognize the difference between boredom as a gift and boredom as a symptom of acedia? I think with me anyway, when acedia is striking as boredom, it's really encouraged me to disconnect from other people, um, not answer the phone, not bother to go to church. And I was thinking about that the other day because I, I have way too many Sundays where I just can't make myself go. And now that we're only meeting on Zoom, I am, I'm attending both services during Sunday mornings just so I can see people's faces. It's made me realize how valuable that church community is to me in so many ways and thinking, why, why was I rejecting that? Uh, acedia really does, is it is just disconnecting you from the very people that you need to survive and that you may not recognize you need them. So that's for me one of the main, one of the main things where if I'm just bored, you know, I can find something to do. But if I'm bored in a way that's that you know, is encouraging me to just ignore other people, disconnect from other people, then it might be a CDM. Kathleen, I, I hang out with Jesuits. And, um, you know, oh, one dear. of the things, I know, I know, you know, just, <laughs> but, but I'm. They're Jesuits, so that's okay. My, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lay Cistercian, uh, so which is like a Trappist oblate. So I've still got that to inoculate me. But um, no, I love the Jesuits. I love the Trappists. I love the Jesuits. But the Jesuits always say, find God in all things. So here's my question to you. How do we find God in Assyria? And Benedict finds God in all things too. And actually, that's one of the striking things when I, when I read the early wisdom on it from the fourth century. Basically, that seems to be the, the one thing that no one, no one can find anything good about it. The only thing is that the opposite of acedia is love. So that if you can work your way through acedia, stagger through all of those bad thoughts that are telling you that nothing matters and reconnect with other people, realizing who you love and what love, doing what love requires, uh, big, to bring out the big guns. Thomas Aquinas talks about acedia as basically, it's the failure to do what love requires. 
that you don't want to do these things because you're 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 too tired you're you're lazy you're just you know you just fell oh, that's too much to ask but if you can see your way past that and and actually do what love requires i mean caregivers have have to face this all the time parents have to face this all the time to do what love requires is really really hard but that is one way that we sort of can fight our way through acedia uh, but Basically, it's probably one of the most negative things in the world. And I, when I was doing the research for Acedia and putting together all these quotes and comments from, about Acedia from all literature from all over the world, you know, you really think this is just the most depressing thing. It is so negative. It's just purely negative. So, yeah, work your way through to something positive, I guess. This conversation on Encountering Silence will continue after a 30-second break of silence. Take a moment and breathe with us. Well, I've heard it said that all art is either a testament to beauty or a testament to beauty by showing beauty's absence. So that kind of ties in. Acedia testifies to love by showing us what the absence of love looks like. That's a wonderful way to look at it, yeah. Yeah. Because it certainly is the absence of love. And that's why that disconnecting, (laughs) my mom's calling me on the phone and I'm not going to answer. That, that kind of thing is like, wait a minute, what's going on here? It is the absence of love. Kathleen, I, I want to thank you again for that book, Acedia and Me, um, and the boldness and clarity the book brought to light, not only of Acedia, but also of mental health issues and reducing stigma of mental health. And I think that that's something that's really lacking in churches right now, just mental health awareness. And my question is, could you speak to maybe how understanding acedia could contribute to maybe reducing stigma around mental health issues in churches? Well, of course, one of the things I had to contend with very early on in the book is that there's a difference between acedia and clinical depression. And it's mm-hmm. not a clear-cut distinction that the, 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 the lines are fluid and always have been. That's one thing I learned in my research. The lines have always been sort of fluid um, in fact, it was interesting talking to an abbot, I said, uh, about acedia, and he said, oh, he said, every monk here suffers from that at one time or another, and we, we, we stick together, we learn how to, we keep going to choir, we learn how to deal with it, but he said, if I, he say, if the formation director says, I've got this guy, I really don't know if he's clinically depressed, or if it's just garden variety acedia, and so the abbot and the formation people will try to determine that. And if think if they think it's clinical depression, they'll send them to a, psychi- a psychiatrist. I mean, no question. They will deal with it that way if they think it's just what everyone, again, garden variety is seedy. And one of the things the abbot said was that 
if, if we think it's just acedia, I'll often take a guy, maybe he's doing intellectual work, and I'll assign him to have a little garden spot or something where he has to do physical labor. So to get him out of that, that closed circle of the self, which I think is one of the things that acedia really is, it's that closed circuit of the self. And I think that can be true in, in neuroses and clinical depression too, that you, you're sort of closed inside yourself and are trapped there in a sense. And sometimes you need a doctor and medication and therapy to get out. And sometimes, you know, you need, uh, like in a monastic community, you just need to keep going to prayers with the other monks until it passes. You know, so there's, but there is definitely a distinction because I certainly didn't want to have people read my book and think, oh, she's blaming people for being mentally ill. That, that, that was a huge concern for me. And I've gotten some good responses from that, people who understood that that's what I was trying to do. In fact, the call-in programs were really interesting because on public radio especially, I would get these psychiatrists and psychologists calling in and saying, oh, what this monk and this, in the, what, what you're talking about is what we're doing in therapy and you know this uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. And I said, yeah, but the monk of Agrius found discovered it 1,700 years ago. It's not exactly new, and we would have these wonderful conversations about about the therapies now. And we're exactly thinking about your thoughts is what Agrius called it, and that's what they call it now. So that's been a really fruitful part of the discussion about that book because I, I'm hoping that it opened up. And I, I I belong to a little Episcopal church, and actually we've got a pretty good share of our neurotics, and we find ways to work with them and in really understanding ways. And when we really do run into, you know, hardcore narcissistic personality disorder, again, you recognize it. You hope they're getting therapy. Um, you, you try to deal with it, but you don't reject people. I think, I think our church is actually pretty good at doing that, this little congregation anyway. And I think partly because we do have a lot of fairly educated people. They know what they're dealing with. You know, if somebody does something really off the wall, they're not necessarily going to be upset about it. They're going to try to find out why, what's causing that kind of behavior. I, I really appreciate the comment about uh, psychologists and psychiatrists calling in and talking about CBT, because I do some spiritual direction and I, I talk with students and we and we read Avagrius and and and. Mm. You know, and it's and it's funny to me because I read Avagrius and then I read CBT and I thought to myself, wait, what? <laughs> it's the same terminology. Think yeah. about what? It's right. exactly what he was saying in the fourth century. It's amazing. It's amazing. You know, he even talks about two sides of the brain. Right. He says if one side of, if you if one side of your brain is giving you a problem, you know, try to work with the other side and you go, How did he know? <laughs> Well, well, I mean, I think too, I, it's funny you say that I, some of the stuff I do is about in the ancient world, they did have two words to talk about two different ways of knowing, um, that was in the Greek and was in Latin. And we have this in Hebrew too, that there's a kind of knowing that is kind of, uh, logical, linear thinking, uh, where we would think rational. And then there's a kind of knowing that's more holistic, more embodied, more open, more heart-centered. Uh, you know, uh, the Semitic word heart is a kind of a knowing. It's not necessarily, it's more than just feeling. It's knowing, et cetera. So I wonder if Evagrius, because there's those two words, if he's talking about those two ways of understanding the world and the mind that he's thinking well, that way. He, he probably is, and it partly, and this is a little bit off the subject, but not, not really, because 
when he first went to the desert, there's a famous story about him. And of course, he was much more highly educated than almost anybody there. A lot right. of these monks were literate. Right. They, they memorized the Bible and they knew scriptures and, and things like that, but they, they couldn't read or write. And that would be common for the time. And But a lot of them had a lot of spiritual wisdom. And here's this young guy comes in from, you know, Constantinople and he's educated. He's, you know, a brilliant theologian and all that. And he starts to speak at one of the first meetings that he goes to a synaxis, a meeting of the, of the brothers, the monks. And one of the older monks says, you know, maybe you should listen before you speak. So he's taking this advice from a, a literate monk telling him the guy who, who has all that book learning and the linear knowledge and, and mm -hmm. the theology and all of that stuff, maybe, the, maybe there's something going on here. You need to slow down and listen before you speak. Mm -hmm. And to his credit, he took that. He wasn't insulted. A lot of people would just walk away. Well, what does this, this guy, this illiterate guy have to say to me? But he didn't do that. He responded and said, my God, they're right. And that's how he ended up there for the rest of his life. And by the time he died, he was a very well-respected elder himself. But I think it demonstrates that, that those two kinds of learning, and he, he had the first, and over the years, he developed the second. Yeah. Yeah. Very good point. Um, somebody named Alexis Trader wrote a book called Ancient Christian Wisdom and Aaron Beck's Cognitive Therapy, A Meeting of Minds. So it's, it's exploring this exact territory that, that you're speaking of. And, um, you know, and yeah, I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done. That's, that's an area that needs some further study. Certainly. Well, yeah, and I and again, I just stumbled across all this stuff and discovering more about the early church. And of course, with the Benedictines, that's their era. I mean, they're, you know, the order is over fifteen hundred years old, and so, you know, this is their spiritual heritage. And so, sharing all of that, finding all of that, really changed my life. I mean, it it really has um, uh, made so many things possible for me. And so, I keep going back to the early church. The the writings and it's always gratifying when i was at st john's the last time i saw cassidy at st john's you know i was there with some seminary professors and everything and occasionally we'd be in church together with the monks and choir and i remember one time there was a beautiful homily from gregory the great that was being read at vespers or morning prayer or something and these people were just stunned it was so beautiful and so thoughtful and and completely contemporary it it it, it had something to say and I remember they were just stunned by that. And I said, you know, this is why I hang out with the early church guys, the, the, the desert fathers and mothers and these early theologians. They they had it. They really understood so much. And we neglect that, I think, at our apparel. And it's not it's not like it's arcane stuff. It's it's ancient, but it's it's very accessible. You know, some of it's a little you know, like, I, I don't know if you want to run off and read Ambrose on St. Ambrose on virginity, but, but that's actually a, a marvelous uh, essay. And it's not like it's, it's not linear. It's, it's, it comes more out of that wisdom tradition. Speaking of, of listening in your book, Amazing Grace, you write, listening to all words, the silent words of nature, the words of friends and enemies, and the words of scripture can become an exercise in human yearning and divine response flowing in and out of one's life like a river current. That's not bad. And I, I wrote that. Oh. <laughs> and I wonder, how do you think this deep listening can change our lives in such a time when we find ourselves in quarantine 
in facing fear in a number of ways. One of the things I've learned to do, if I've had a very verbal day where I'm, I'm say I'm watching one movie and it's pretty exhausting, emotionally exhausting, and I'm writing a lot of emails, I need to cut back. I need to go back into silence and have no more words for a while. Uh, that's something that, I mean, I've always kind of known that, but I think during this pandemic, um, it's been more, even more important that I pull back maybe every day, maybe part of it, part in the more in the afternoon or early evening. Okay. I have to settle down now. I have to get back into more silence and not just that flood of words that I've been exposed to all day, either in my own writing to people or in what I'm reading on online, or even, even, you know, the monks at St. John's are live streaming their masses all every day now. And, and even that listening to a homily there, I mean, it, they're wonderful homilies and I hear some wonderful music, but it's words. So I need to get, say, okay, enough, enough. And you know, and another thing that's helped a lot is humor. You know, I think uh, beauty and prayer and humor are the things that are really important at a time like this. And one of the things I absolutely love is my, my, I have a niece in New Jersey and every night I get this really brief video, just a, a couple minutes of her six-year-old telling jokes and the four-year-old either telling her own jokes or responding to it. And the jokes are awful. They're the kind of thing little kids think are really funny, you know, but it's just been wonderful. It's this, you know, seeing these little girls poke each other and tell stupid jokes. And then I get some funny jokes, some funnier stuff uh, online that I, I, it, and I feel like, okay, I need to share this with people now because people need a good laugh. Kathleen, here's a, here's a question for you from one monastic oblet to another. How do you think the period, uh, this period of isolation of staying at home, how has that changed your understanding of cloister and of the, the choice that our monastic sisters and brothers have made with their lives? Well, I know a little bit about what's going on with monastic communities themselves, that they are cloistered in a way that they're not used to being cloistered, that especially the Benedictines, the Trappists, maybe, maybe life hasn't changed that much for them. But with Benedictine monasteries, because they have so many elderly members, for the first time that anyone can remember, they don't have any guests. The guest houses are closed and the monasteries themselves are in pretty strict lockdown so that if if people leave to go to a doctor's appointment, they need to go in quarantine before they can come back because they need to protect people. In fact, St. John's just had a candidate come during the middle of this crazy thing. And there's a hilarious picture of them. They basically did the laying on of hands of blessing in a parking lot. And then he had to go to the guest house to stay for two weeks before he could, he was getting some online classes with people. He wasn't alone and completely ignored in the guest house, but he was alone in the guest house for 14 days before they could let him come into the monastery so it's it that's a that's a different experience for them and as a couple of them have said it's changed their experience of community that they're they're learning more about each other and sometimes that's good and sometimes it's not and it's a struggle you know but they're as good monastics they're sort of taking it as okay this is what god wants us to do right now so we, we should learn from it i think for myself the sense of cloistering sense of a cloister as being in oneself that we each are a cloister and I thought I love that 
you know, coming from a Trappist too, who lives a fairly cloistered life, but she said the real important cloister is the one within. And I think that's the one probably that during this crisis, we're encouraged to try to develop. And if someone living alone, it might be easier to do that than if you're, if you're quarantined with your family. But even there, looking at like my nieces and, and their husbands and, and my grandnieces, that learning to value the family even more. I mean, they all love they love their kids and all of that. But now having to spend so much time together to value that even more is you can and you can either do that or you can get really frustrated. And I've heard that, you know, there's a lot of conflict going on in families now because people don't like being cooped up together. People have to be kind of creative. I know with my uh, my grandnieces in Denver, every weekend they're trying to get into the mountains or the foothills to go on a hike that kind of thing, to get out of the house. But I think knowing that there's this important um, part of yourself that uh, is sacred and remains sacred, and it's in yourself, it's in your family, um, and valuing that even more, I think, is a, is a good possibility here. And you can also choose to do the opposite. And I think that's what I'm seeing. This concludes part one of a two-part episode. We are Encountering Silence. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, KevinMichaelJohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is CarlMcCollman.com. Please visit the podcast website at EncounteringSilence.com. There, you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit Patreon.com slash EncounteringSilence. This way, you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world.